Welcome to Pot to Popular, a podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Join along as we learn from the greatest minds in this industry and learn about how cannabis is becoming part of popular culture, health, wellness, and industry. Welcome to today's episode of Pots of Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Maddio. Today, we're joined by Dina Rollman, SVP of Government and Regulatory Affairs at Green Thumb Industries. Dina's going to join us today and talk about how her team have played a critical role in building out the Midwest cannabis market over the past eight years and what compelled her to really dig in and try to create a more equitable cannabis community for both women and those marginalized by the war on drugs. Welcome, Dina. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you here today. It's been great to have you guys as a client for the past year and getting to know you and all the amazing things that you do at Green Thumb. Um, but I want to talk a little about you and you know how you got into the space. You know, you and your team at Green Thumb played a pretty critical role in building out the Midwest cannabis market over the past eight years, which is so impressive. I just want to give our listeners a sense of like what compelled you to enter the cannabis industry after an extensive and successful career in commercial litigation. How did you make the job? You know, it was just one of those things where, you know, sometimes you're at the right place, the right time in history. And yes, I was, you know, a commercial litigator representing companies, you know, suing each other, you know, or doing defense work, you know, but really like business disputes of one kind or another, which was challenging and interesting, but I can't say really tapped any into any particular passion of mine. Um, But at the end of 2013, um, the Illinois legislature had legalized medical cannabis and, I realized if Illinois was legalizing medical cannabis, like that meant, you know, as they say, like the toothpaste is out of the tube. Like we're kind of, a, you know, it's the Midwest. It's a little conservative, a little slower to adopt new things. And, you know, look, I already had been a, you know, fan of the product, you know, for years, especially my college years um, and had, you know, been active in normal and things like that in college. And so it was, a, it was a right I always believed in. Um, and, but I hadn't been paying a whole lot of attention to the evolution. And once Illinois legalized, I, I said, like, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I am going to be a cannabis lawyer somehow, some way. Oh, yeah. um, and so I started giving um, like legal presentations to just lawyers at my law firm at lunchtime. They thought I'd completely lost my mind. I would like, you know, make brownies, um, you know, just to be funny, like pot brownies and like put them out and give these legal presentations about the Illinois cannabis law. Um, Mostly just to teach myself like what the landscape was. And uh, one day one of my partners attended uh, my little talk and afterwards said, you know, we need to meet. I know this guy, Ben Kovler, he's putting together a team to apply for these licenses. And, you know, I think he'd love to talk to a lawyer who's actually passionate about the space. And so that honestly, that that did it. I then got introduced to Ben, you know, pitched him on this idea that like because of my legal skills, I had a pretty good sense of how to tackle one of these competitive license applications. Of course, I had no idea what I was talking about, but I just kind of, you know, sometimes it's a fake it till you make it. And, and Ben was willing to, t- you know, take a gamble on me. Thank God. And um, we crushed it. You know, we worked really hard on these applications in Illinois. That was our first date. We want we were awarded three cultivation licenses and a dispensary license. And then I was like, then this is real. And I quit my job at the law firm and said, OK, now I'm a cannabis lawyer. And that's kind of when when the adventure began. I love it. And as someone who just just says yes, like I say this a lot in terms like people talk about our agency. They said, do you guys do social media? I said, yes, we do. But we didn't. Right. Huh? I always like <laughs> love seeing other people who just like figure it out. We're just going to figure it out. I do this now. I'm a cannabis lawyer. This is yep. who I am. Yep. 
<laughs> so I absolutely love that. You know, and you, so you first joined Green Thumb, you know, as like an outside counsel sort of position um, when when the medical market was taking off. So how does your current work in the regulatory compliance spaces, which is more like your role now, um, differ from the initial responsibilities? And how do you believe your role will evolve over the next few years as this thing is continuing to, to grow and grow? Well, you know, that's really been one of the most fun things about working for a startup. You know, when you're in a law firm, the path is very well defined for you. You're an associate and then you're a partner. And, you know, it's it's like a pretty boring trajectory, really. Whereas, you know, because you're just always doing the same work, more or less. But, um, you know, in my early Green Thumb days, I was doing these competitive license applications, which was like a totally new skill and challenge for me. You know, we did them in New Jersey and Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, we kept succeeding. So it's kind of like, OK, we, we, we really have kind of cracked this nut, which was really fun to figure out. Um, and then at the same time, as we were operationalizing the Illinois business and then later states, you know, it was all of our first time working in a highly regulated industry where, you know, there's regulations that apply to like how you destroy of cannabis waste at the end of the week and how you do inventory in your vault and how high your counters need to be in your dispensary so nobody can jump over them. I mean, it was like such minutia. And luckily, I think just from being an attorney, like I already was used to having to have like attention to detail. So in the early days, I was the one kind of creating a compliance program for us and trying to educate our people, like our team on, you know, what it means to be compliant and I kind of built a relationship with our regulators so they would have kind of a credible, trusted person as a resource at Green Thumb when issues came up, because of course issues always come up. Um, and then after a while, you know, and then at the same time I was doing kind of jack of all trades legal in the early days, there, there were really just kind of two in-house attorneys for Green Thumb. We're both still here. It's me and Brett Kravitz. And he was always the kind of corporate transactional attorney and I was the everything else bucket. So I got to do all kinds of legal stuff that I probably wasn't really qualified to do. But, you know, again, you, you just kind of like wing it and figure it out, which was super fun. Um, and then about three, it was three or four years ago um, that I saw kind of two needs at Green Thumb and that I had the kind of privilege to fill. One was I wanted to formalize our sort of social impact, social equity activities. We were already doing a lot, but we didn't have any kind of formal structure to it. So um, you know, worked with Ben and others to say, okay, let's kind of actually create this department and staff it. So we've, we've done that. And I, I oversee our social impact department. So I've been able to kind of like learn a ton about, you know, the complexities of this industry, which like we could talk more about, but just, you know, how, how to tackle making it a more equitable industry. So that's been kind of part of my job for the last few years. And then um, at the same time, we also didn't have a government affairs function. Um, and so I created that. And so I, I oversee government affairs for Green Thumb. And that has really meant mostly tackling government affairs at the state level and dealing with things like, you know, what right now, you know, Rhode Island has a draft adult use bill. So I'm, you know, filing public comments on it, working with lobbyists, trying to impact, you know, either expanded medical laws, adult use bills, things like that. Um, you know, of course, also always keeping an eye on what's happening on the federal level and then also getting into some of like the regulatory changes you want to make. I mean, one of the things we all see in the industry is the people who write the regulations for our industry generally have never actually worked in the industry. And so there always is a disconnect between what the regulations say and like what actually works. And so one of the things I also try to do is work closely with our operations teams understand what their pain points are, what is not working, what's an outdated reg, a reg that should never have existed in the first place. And then I'll, again, work with trade associations, lobbyists, and others to try to get those regulations changed. Amazing. I mean, you're wearing a lot of hats and, you know, about a more equitable industry. You know, one my biggest privilege in the industry is meeting women like you um, who are 
just so good at their craft and are just um, trailblazers really in the space. And I know that's, you know, pretty important to you to be connected and surrounded by, you know, women or helping move women forward. So when you were getting started with Green Thumb, you also found time to launch Illinois Women in Cannabis with Wendy Berger. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the time, why is it, why why was it so important to you to create this like dedicated space for female professionals and what unique resources or opportunities can IWC members gain access to by being part of it? Talk to us about the founding of that and, and your mission behind it. Well, you know, again, maybe there's a theme here, but, um, you know, I had never founded a not-for-profit, never been on a board, but um, back in 2014, um, I was lucky to meet Wendy Berger, who was an early Green Thumb investor and now is on our, you know, public company board. I was just impressed with her the minute I met her. It's just also being just as like, you know, brilliant, strong, you know, independent, you know, kind of driven, like just destined to succeed kind of person and uh, just really inspiring. And, I knew that she felt strongly as I did that, you know, here in Illinois, it was like, we have a brand new industry coming. There's no legalized cannabis industry. And thanks to the you know passage of this law, soon we're going to have cultivation and dispensaries and, and, and actually get off to the races. So it was like the perfect moment in time to say, let's found a not-for-profit called Illinois Women in Cannabis that will, you know, initially just raise awareness for women. Like, Hey, cannabis, you know, medical cannabis is legal in Illinois but also think about, you know, the job and career opportunities that this is going to bring. So what we kind of started trying to highlight really early on was it's okay to have zero experience in cannabis. It's if you are, you know, in marketing, in law, in accounting, et cetera, you already have the skill set you need. Now is the time to capitalize on that. And you can build kind of like a niche practice or create a new line of business for your company or, you know, strike out on your own like I did. I created my own, you know, cannabis law firm. But like, this is the moment in time where you can be at the starting point of a brand new industry instead of trying to catch up to the guys later. So we started throwing networking events. We invited men to the networking events too. I mean, our goal was like, let's get the players into the room. You know, like women shouldn't only be talking to each other if they want to lead in this industry. They have to meet the men too. They have, you know, we need to foster these connections. And so one of the things we did really well early on was just, create rooms in, you know, in Chicago generally, um, where we would attract people who were seeing this, this opportunity and were, you know, ready to pounce on it. And in those rooms, you know, um, relationships were forged that, you know, have held today. And, you know, countless women told me over the years, like, yeah, it was great. You know, I had never met anybody in cannabis. I came to your networking event. I met so-and-so and now, you know, this company is a client or now I got this job. I mean, it really, because it was early days, you know, initially there were 100 people in the room, then there were 300. Our last big event before COVID had, you know, 700 people in the room. And there's just, you know, we are a passionate bunch in cannabis. So you get us all into a room for networking. It's not dry and boring. You know, people aren't stiff about it. It is, you know, a bunch of passionate, um, energetic people. And so the networking is, is actually like electric at these things. I love it. You know, uh, one of our, our, my favorite hashtags is be in the room, right? Always mm-hmm. say yes, go up to a room because you never those opportunities, especially being like early in the industry, they become really deep relationships and connections get made and you can actually do business from them. So that's amazing. And uh, hope now yeah. getting a little bit more out of COVID over the next, you know, couple of months as it seems to be clearing up, you'll get this. And, and what's great is, is um, you know, we, we held this like 700 person event right before COVID. Um, at the time, we did not have an executive director. We're just an all-volunteer board of directors. It's been just running this not-for-profit since 2014. Um, but during COVID, we realized we, you know, we had 
gotten enough into our checking account to finally be able to hire an executive director. So we actually, you know, hired somebody during COVID. Um, her, her name is Amor Montes de Oca. And she transitioned in during COVID and really was able to pivot us to, you know, virtual networking events and all kinds of educational opportunities built on our website so we could have, you know, job boards and, you know, member membership, you know, portals. Um, and we've really leveraged over the last two years, you know, tons of new partnerships with other, um, you know, you know, social equity stakeholders, uh, community colleges, you know, like just greatly expanded our reach. Um, so we're excited. And, and now, you know, we're about to have a, a board meeting where we really start focusing on expanding our board. Um, one of the things, you know, we know is that, you know, you you, you can't just kind of get stuck in, in your early days. And, and here we are talking about social equity and creating opportunity in the industry. And we think one of the best ways we can do that is, you know, creating leadership opportunities. So we're going to be expanding our board um, and, you know, driving additional membership and hopefully, you know, continuing to grow the organization. Yeah, and, and in that lane of education, um, I want to talk a little bit about um, LEAP, right? So, um, and, and that's how you guys are helping license for uh, local businesses. Um, you help develop LEAP, which helps social equity applicants navigate the licensing process and get their business off the ground. So I would love to talk a little bit about, maybe people understand like what the barriers to entry um, does LEAP help applicants overcome? And what are the long-term goals of the program? I know education is part of it, but like what are the tactics that people learn by being part of the LEAP program? What are some of the criteria to join? Yeah, so, you know, as I said, you know, GTI got its start doing a competitive, competitive license application. You know, here I was, you know, with like 15 years of, you know, heavy duty litigation experience and we had a full team. And we had, you know, the resources we needed to hire accountants and architects and things like that. You know, it was not a cheap endeavor to apply for a license in Illinois at the time. Um, and so I, I saw that, you know, as we kept applying for these licenses, yes, we were good at it. But at the same time, I couldn't ignore the fact, like, we also had money to throw at, at the process. And I knew that as states are creating these social equity programs and they want, you know, social equity groups to apply for licenses, applying for licenses if you've never done it before, it's, it's really hard and it does take a lot of resource. So what I wanted to do is, you know, create a program where social equity applicants didn't have to like reinvent the wheel that we had, you know, spent years learning through these license applications. So um, really started focusing first in Illinois on counseling applicants on how to put together a competitive license application, kind of soup to nuts, like how to even approach it, how, you know, what kind of team do you want to build where do you start in order of importance so you don't run out of time? You know, where if you have a limited budget to spend on your application, should it go, you know, to a security plan or to the architect or the accountant kind of like help people figure out like how to optimize your chances of winning? Um, so we helped, you know, over 100 groups apply for licenses. Amazing. You know, felt really good about that. Everything was free. GTI did not take any, you know, equity interest economic interest of any kind. It was entirely just a pro bono program. Just want to make that clear. Um, no skin in the game in terms of who won whatsoever. Um, and, and really open to all, you know, people have asked me like, do people have to apply to be in your program? No, the way we structured it was really intended to be open to all. So, you know, especially COVID hit during this process. So all of our presentations were on zoom, you know, open to anybody who registered, um, we provided free like one-on-one -on -one counseling to whoever signed up. So trying to make it broadly accessible. Um, and then, you know, we just did something similar in um, Connecticut where they've opened up their social equity pro process um, and you have to adapt to each state. So in Connecticut, 
you know, the application itself is, um, you know, fairly straightforward, but there are all these different types of um, license categories. And it's difficult to know if you even qualify as a social equity applicant. So we held a series of seminars in partnership with uh, Vicente Cedarberg, the law firm, and the NAACP of Greater New Haven to educate people through webinars on like, do you qualify as a social equity applicant? Um, you know, what types of licenses should you think about applying for? Because some might make sense for you and some not. And again, trying to like get people set up in that initial stage to apply for licenses and succeed in winning them. But then we know that only gets you to the starting line of having a cannabis business. So really where we want to shift to over the next few years is developing that um, kind of like mentoring slash incubating component to it. So once people are awarded a license, again, they don't have to like reinvent the wheel and learn everything the hard way. Um, you know, Green Thumb, we have 77 or 78 dispensaries open now. You know, we know how to open a dispensary. We know what it takes. We know what the sequence is. We know what it should cost. So why not, you know, without giving away, obviously, like trade secrets, special sauce kind of stuff, but the basics of it, absolutely, let's help social equity applicants, you know, kind of get through that process a lot cleaner than, than we used to. Yeah, I love that. And I want to get to turning on new states and new stores in a moment, but without giving me the secret sauce, I bet there's some people listening. Um we want to know what the essential components are of a successful license application. Like how can newer small businesses owners stand out during the process? Like what are those one or two piece of advice you give like a new applicant, you know, some of these like New York, they're coming online where these applications are coming out. What do people really need to think about before jumping in? I mean, there's always a lot and it, you know, it depends on each state. Sometimes you have to have a piece of property actually identified in order to apply. And so in that situation, you know, you're, you really have to sell why the location you've identified is, is, is such a winning location, either for the, you know, that community or, um, you know, the way that you intend to operate that store, et cetera. But, you know, I think states are moving away from that because again, that just becomes another barrier for people that you have to, you know, with real estate prices where they are right now, the fact that you would have to get a property under lease, you know, hold it for a year or three, if you're in Illinois, you know, it can get zoning. There's all these barriers. So they're moving away from acquiring real estate. So then really, I think a big thing is, is your team, you know, and, and telling the story of, of who is your team? What is your, like, what's the backstory and what's your vision for the kind of business you want to run? You know, it's, it's, you're trying to kind of stand out from a crowded field. So thinking about, um, you know, the professional backgrounds of the people on your team or their personal stories or other ways you can really, um, you know, articulate that what you want to do is, is something kind of special. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, you know, back to, you know, opening new states and, you know, the, the future of the Green Thumb in the industry, you guys have been in a growing spree lately and you guys became one of the first operators to commence adult use in New Jersey last month. I know we got to be there together and the energy yep. was palpable and it was just such an exciting moment uh, for the industry, for Green Thumb and, you know, for my state. I live in New Jersey. So considering how the New Jersey Cannabis uh, Regulatory Commission began approving retail licenses, like with very little notice, right? We did yes. a week. What steps yes. did you guys take to prepare its supply and operations of the occasion? And I'm sure this was like a long time coming, but it did turn on almost like with the flip of a switch. How did you guys tackle it? Well, you know, the good news is, you know, having a government affairs department and, and the other kind of infrastructure that we have at the company, we're keeping a quick pulse on things in, in our markets as they develop. So, you know, what, what we don't like surprises. So we're, you know, trying to kind of anticipate what's coming down the pike as, as well as possible. So we did know adult use was coming soon-ish, you know, it was just a little up in the air how soon-ish. Um, so, you know, of course we had, you know, um, 
you know, production ramping up in advance. Um, we had, you know, our marketing team looking at the packaging and labeling we would need, um, you know, but really, you know, the biggest thing I think we did in, in terms of laying groundwork was on the local level. You know, it's, it's, I think that's something that maybe gets missed in the early days for people in the industry is just how crucial those local relationships are. And so, you know, in Bloomfield, um, you know, we worked with um, the local planning and zoning department, not only just to get, you know, our local zoning approval to do adult use, but we also submitted, you know, plans, you know, architectural plans um, showing like the traffic flow of like, this, this is how, when we have this, like these high traffic days, like opening days, this is how the cars are going to flow through. This is how we're going to handle, you know, parking for the medical patients versus the adult use customers and kind of conveying to the community and the, like, you know, the, the leaders of that community, like, you can trust us. We're, we we are thinking this through, regardless of when you know the regulators say we can launch. Like we we're not jamming this through to you. Like we spent months, you know, on these plans. So your cowboy publicist comes in and jams a parking lot with fifteen news trucks. <laughs> and the yes. piece, um, aside from that, it was great planning. <laughs> yes. Aside from that, um, yes, that was uh, that was a pretty funny sight at uh, six a.m. that morning. Uh, all those news trucks, but um, you know, so yeah, we. We have the benefit again of, of we have seen this movie before. We have done the transition from medical to adult use in other markets, including, of course, Illinois. So, you know, again, I keep saying it, but it's, it's there's a lot of like learning things the hard way in this industry. But the good news is like as you have new, each new experience, you you do learn from it, you know, and we, we really try not to make the same mistake twice. So, um, you know, we took what we had learned from the launch of REC in Illinois and, and did New Jersey you know, a, lot, a lot better. Yeah. And it was really like, like I said, such an exciting day, like the, the energy was palpable you know, throughout the state and, and at Rise, you know, and talking a little bit about new experiences, I want to shift gear a little bit in more mature markets like Illinois, where you guys started cannabis retail and consumption experiences are also becoming more sophisticated to meet consumer preferences. I know you guys are always thinking about the consumer and you guys recently opened the first Smoke Easy, which is a consumption lounge in Mundelein. What kind of experiences can visitors expect and what other immersive experiences are on the horizon? Well, yes, it's it's honestly very exciting. I, I did as one of the, the many hats I wear. I did work um, on getting that zoning approval in the village of Mundelein um, to do the consumption lounge. Illinois was interesting. They sort of just generally legalized having a consumption lounge as part of your dispensary, with the caveat like as long as local zoning allows it. So that's kind of like <laughs> there's the rub: getting local zoning approval to do a consumption lounge, which has never been done before, east of the Mississippi, like. You know, that was a little bit of a new challenge, also a little bit of a learning curve, you know, trying to get um, our zoning board and, you know, the city council kind of comfortable with this idea. Um, you know, tons of concerns, obviously, about overconsumption, impaired driving, you know, so we had, you know, again, it was, it's building that relationship. We built credibility in Mundelein over the years. That was our very first dispensary of all in, in you know, in all of Green Thumb. So we had some very nice, you know, strong uh, healthy local relationships. And so I did all this work and, you know, I consume cannabis, love it, but I was so lost in the work. I sort of forgot like what, what, what was I actually creating here? And then when we actually opened the smoke easy and I, you know, went and visited for the first time, it was like an emotional experience because a lot of us, you know, we're sort of as cannabis consumers, you're always kind of scrambling for where you can legally or safely consume, you know? And it's, it's like, if you're, the minute you're not in your house, it's like, 
you're a little bit at risk generally from just openly and comfortably consuming. And suddenly here's this nice space. It's like the decor is beautiful. There's lighting that we have like leather banquettes. It's, it's a whole, it's a vibe, you know, it's a smoke easy vibe, right? So it's just kind of like, kind of like you're transported kind of the minute you're in there. And then there's table service for you with, you know, the student glass gravity bong. Would you like to use that? Or would you prefer, you know, the dab rig? Or would you prefer a good old fashioned glass bong? You know, like it, well, it's I'm only two like, thirty, but like I'm ready to cut off work right now. Right? <laughs> We're both smiling yeah. like a little too much right now to this part thinking about it. So it was, you know, when you're you're sitting at a table with friends and you're consuming, you know, our awesome cannabis that we produce, and it's just relaxed. And I was like, I didn't remotely take it for granted, I, you know, and it's like it just feels like such early days because obviously everybody, you can just walk into a barn and you do take for granted that you can walk into a barn and order a cocktail. And this is like the very first experience that myself and others ever get to have of like just showing up in a space created for you to consume and, and have it not be a big deal and, and have it like honoring the experience, you know? So I think, you know, it's a huge hit. Everyone that visits loves it. I, I don't know how you could not. And um, so in terms of the future, it's, it's just building on that experience, like making that, experience happen in, in, at other dispensaries, um, you know, and, and trying to like push the ball forward, frankly, on normalizing consumption and, and getting, you know, local officials and other, you know, politicos and otherwise over this like paranoia about, you know, overconsumption and impaired driving. Cause if we look at how alcohol is treated in this country and the amount of, you know, DUIs and, overconsumption of alcohol and all the ills that leads to, and nobody talks about returning to prohibition of alcohol. I'm trying to get us to a place where people understand that, you know, you have to trust those 21 and up the way we trust them rightly or wrongly to consume alcohol safely. We should also be allowed to be trusted to consume cannabis safely. So I feel like we're, we're chipping and chipping away at it, you know, and it's, it's slow going, but I am, I'm, I'm in, I'm here for it. <laughs> I love it. And you know, the, the way you feel in that smoke easy, it just feels so normal, right. And this whole normalization of cannabis, like, I think you guys are really uh, thought leaders in that. And like, it's very comfortable. So very excited to see the future then. And I do want to talk about the future in a second, but I want to take one step back. Um, you know, and you mentioned early on, you guys um, early on recognize, you know, some of the inequalities that are, you know, very prevalent in the cannabis space. But one of your most recent initiatives um, is Good Green. Um, I'd love you to talk a little bit about this initiative and, and what the program does and, and what the focus is and what you guys hope for um, the Good Green grant applicants. Talk a little about the program and what your hopes are for it. So it's a really, I think, you know, kind of new creative type of program um, that I'm really excited about. Um, we have, we create in-house this line of uh, cannabis flower called Good Green um, sold in our dispensaries. And a portion of the proceeds goes to the Good Green Fund. And then we invite 501c3 not-for-profits that are doing good work in communities, marginalized communities um, that supports three pillars, education, employment, and expungement. So, you know, for education, we would be looking, and let me back up, there's a, a grant application process. So 501c3s are invited to apply for these grants. And then we will, you know, we evaluate the grant applications, um, you know, based on our criteria, and then end up awarding grants to um, 501c3s that are either doing education, which would be things like, um, you know, career training for individuals and communities that were directly impacted by the war on drugs, or it could be a 501c3 um, focused on employment. Um, you know, making, you know, broad and sustainable career opportunities for individuals affected by the war on drugs, 
or another key initiative is expungement, you know, looking for, you know, clemency for nonviolent cannabis offenders. So, you know, by, you know, focusing on these three pillars, we're able to take, you know, proceeds from the sales of our products to really work towards a more equitable cannabis industry. I love it. And I've been able to be at some of the, the check presentations and always such a, a great experience, right? And you hear like how much, you know, this money is really helping the communities and, and the organizations. So kudos to you and the team, you know, for, for getting that together and, you, you know, and it's been so successful so far. So yeah. So. And really what we wanted, and thanks for asking about it. Cause one of our biggest goals is really just to raise awareness of it. You know, we do get a good number of grant applications each round, um, but we have another round coming up. Ooh, another round, I think another application period, um, I believe it's coming up in June, but I would just say that, um, no, good.green is the good website. Green. Good.green, simple. Um, you know, anybody listening who's, you know, can think of a good 501c3 that fits those pillars, please encourage them to go to the website and apply. And it's unrestricted to their hands. It's unrestricted. So, you know, go in and, and apply. The, the the money gets gets handed out. I've seen it firsthand. Very large checks, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> it's always fun, a big check presentation. I mean, just to follow up, what are you most excited about uh, for Green Thumb and the industry at large the next year? What's on the horizon for you? Well, again, you know, my um, I, I got that fun experience in Mundelein, getting that consumption lounge, lounge open. And, um, you know, we are working to, you know, expand that experience to other spots. So I will stay involved. You know, I, I had that learning curve, um, you know, the first time. So like I said, like we like we like to do, um, you know, take advantage of what we learned the first time and, and make it, you know, smoother the second time. You know, and beyond that, just again, just trying to find ways to reach more consumers and normalize. You know, I think a big part of what I, I try to do in my role at Green Thumb and given that I've you know, been around for a minute or two and have, you know, the I'm on the demographic everybody would love to reach. I'm like a suburban soccer mom, you know, um, who just happens to be in the cannabis industry. But, you know, I'm sort of joking, but I really do um talk about cannabis a lot in my, you know, community and in my circles and just trying to get people to a place where um, it's really a much more, you know, normalized and accepted way to promote wellness and well-being. I love it. I mean, and keep, keep fighting the good fight because the more soccer moms that are smoking weed, the more I think people will accept it and uh, be part of the fabric, you know, of our lives, which is all what you're looking for. So Dina, thank you so much for joining us today. So great to have you and looking forward to lighting up with you in uh, the next lounge. That sounds great. Thanks so much for having me.